Welcome back to Mama Mystery. I am your host, Kelly. Bam, bam, bam. And I'm your co-host, Austin. Austin is wound for sound today, you guys. He has a baseball. If you hear it banging against the walls, I just don't even have the patience to edit out his behavior. So we're just going to deal with it. What's up? What did you do today that got you so wired? Talk to some good people. Having a good day. Fired up. You are so fired up. What you got for us today, Big Buns? Well, today we are going to be talking about a case that we've actually covered before. Just so if people know, I just call my wife Big Buns. It's like something we do. It's not offensive. I'm not offended. You called her Big Buns. They, they are star big, review. so <laughs> it's, it is what it is. But... Um, So the other day I posted a picture of Scott and Lacey Peterson, and there's been a lot that's happened in this case since you and I covered it way back in the beginning. I don't even know what the sound quality of that episode is like. I know we've come a long way. I bet it was three years ago. To even tell you how far we've come, I had it on a hard drive. I had that episode on a hard drive, just the audio of it, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And the hard drive wouldn't even connect to my computer because it's so old. It was October of 2020. Yeah, so almost three and a half, three years, and a half years, ago. years ago. And I this I do remember we disagreed on the outcome on that episode. Yes. Do you remember how we disagreed? I don't. I remember Scott Peterson, something about getting a ticket from the boat ramp, and I was like thinking he was innocent, and you thought he did it. Incorrect. Oh. Vice versa. Okay. You thought he was super guilty. I had doubts, and we almost got into a fight. And we I almost actually, got into a fight. <laughs> physical fight. I actually, yeah. in the moment, remember telling you at our kitchen table when we were recording, I remember like using my hands to be like, calm down, like, because you were getting legit mad at me <laughs> during this conversation. But um, <clears throat> I don't we recall. are. We are going to talk about it again today. I'm going to go into a little more deep detail. So this is going to be a two-parter. We're going to do part one this week, part two next week. But there's a lot to talk about. And I, I just, I want to know your thoughts because here's the thing. I almost feel like hesitant to even uh, talk about this because of my doubts, because I know that I am kind of a black sheep when it comes to this case. So many people are so convinced of his guilt I have doubts. Not very many people have doubts about his guilt. And so we're going to get into all of it. We're going to talk about all of it. I promise. I'm not going to leave any stone unturned. And if you have any comments or something you want me to address within this case, please message me. You can go to mamamystery.com and there's actually a form there where you can request a case or you can just send us a message. So um, just keep it respectful is all that I ask. Because sometimes people get a little wild. If you don't keep it respectful... Get lost. (laughs) All right. So here is the story of Scott and Lacey Peterson. She was born Lacey Denise Rocha on May 4th, 1975 to Sharon and Dennis Rocha. Sharon and Dennis owned a dairy farm growing up. Lacey and her brother Brent spent a ton of time outside getting dirty and living a classic, simple life on the farm. Her mom said, I always knew she was going to be a good, happy baby. Within a few days, she was sleeping through the night, and when I would go get her out of her crib, she would always wake up with a smile on her face. All her life, she has been a happy person. Lacey's parents separated when she was little, with Sharon moving Lacey and her siblings to Modesto, California. 
Growing up, her friends described her as outgoing, bubbly, energetic, and charming. She had this big beaming smile that just made you feel like you knew her, even if you didn't. When their friends at California Polytechnic State University, or Cal Poly, were out raging at keg parties, Lacey and her friends were at wine tastings or at the Pacific Cafe, and that is where she met Scott. Scott was born on October 24, 1972, in San Diego to Lee Arthur Peterson and Jackie Latham. Lee owned a crate packaging company while Jackie owned a boutique in La Jolla, not La Jolla. Had a girl. <laughs> but it really takes a big effort for me to say that correctly, and I, I wish that weren't the case. If you're new a long time ago, monumental moment in Mama Mystery history. Yeah, the Ooh. episode... Mama Mystery History. The episode of Betty Broderick, I just said La Jolla and didn't even catch it because I didn't know what I was saying. And he, it was actually Austin. And if you know Kelly, Kelly's an English major, very good with words. I mean, writes an essay every week for these. And it was uncommon for her to make a mistake like La Jolla to La Jolla. So we don't let her live that down. Yeah. And every time I see it, I still can't help but say La Jolla in my head. But anyway, Jackie owned a boutique in La Jolla called The Put-On, and his childhood was idyllic. It was jam-packed with activities like Boy Scouts, Little League, family fishing trips, and golf. Scott was a talented kid. By the age of 14, he was a standout on the golf course, and by his senior year of high school, he was one of the top junior golfers in San Diego. Despite this idyllic childhood, the Petersons were not immune to adversity. Scott's mom, Jackie, had a pretty traumatic childhood when her dad was murdered. Her mom couldn't handle being a widowed single mom, so she sent Jackie and her siblings to a group home where they were ultimately raised mostly by Catholic nuns. Oh, that's a wild upbringing. Yeah. Ja I mean, I would imagine. I mean, I would imagine it's very strict. I would imagine it's not a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Jackie wanted differently for her children. She wanted them to have the life that she missed out on. So she was very present as a mother, planning all the school functions, being a scout mom, even taking Scott to work with her at her shop so that he was always with her and cared for. In school and in sports, Scott always excelled and left a stellar impression on his teachers and his coaches. And when he went to college, he attempted to join the golf team at ASU, but ultimately he didn't make it. He dropped out after one semester and moved into a bachelor pad with his golf teammates. In the spring of 1994, Scott enrolled at Cal Poly, where Lacey was a student. He maintained three jobs, one as a waiter at the Pacific Cafe, and he also worked at two local golf courses. He planned to major in international business, but changed his mind, switching to agricultural business instead. So while Scott was working at the Pacific Cafe, Lacey would frequently visit the restaurant with her friends. She had her eye on Scott, and being the outgoing, charming girl she was, she actually approached him by giving him her phone number. He didn't call right away. He played it a little hard to get. But when he finally did, Lacey was ecstatic. She called her mom, Sharon, beaming about the guy she was about to go out with, predicting this was the man she was going to marry. Their first date was deep sea fishing, and Lacey got sick. But despite the rough start, it didn't deter either of them from pursuing a relationship. When Lacey brought her mother down to finally meet Scott, he presented them with a dozen roses each, a dozen red ones for Lacey, and a dozen white ones for Sharon. Oh, he man. was a charmer. Yeah, got game. 
They dated for two years before they tied the knot in 1997 in an intimate ceremony at Sycamore Mineral Springs Resort in San Luis Obispo. Their wedding photo is one of the most iconic and infamous photos of the couple. During their first year of marriage, Scott finished up his senior year, and his extracurricular activities included at least two affairs that we know of. The details are unknown, but even his family has defended those actions by saying that these types of relationships are common. Even happily married couples cheat, but it doesn't equate to murder. And while I agree with the second sentiment, the first one is such an obtuse response to someone stepping out on their marriage. Happily married couples cheat. Yes, exactly. No, if you're boasting yourself as being in a happy marriage, but you're actively cheating on your spouse, that indicates to me a very serious character and moral defect. I know it's common for people to cheat when they're stuck in an unhappy marriage, but to claim that you're happy, but you're sleeping with other women... That's sociopathic and mm-hmm. sick, in my opinion. So Scott graduated from college the following year, and by then the couple had opened up a little burger joint called The Shack. The super casual restaurant was located within a strip mall, and it boasted a fisherman's wharf style of decor, a bucket of peanuts on every table, just a laid-back, chill atmosphere. I think they were known most for their onion rings or some sort of like deep-fried onion dish. Mm-hmm. I don't know. They built the shack into a profitable business before they sold it to new ownership in the year 2000. The couple was eager to settle down and start a family, so they moved to Modesto. They moved into a little 1,800-square-foot bungalow on Covina Avenue in La Loma neighborhood in close proximity to Lacey's parents so that when they did eventually have kids, they would hopefully have their help. Their home was less than a block away from Thousand Oaks Park, which was a scenic trail that was perfect for walking their golden retriever, Mackenzie. Scott landed a job as a salesman for Trade Corps, where he traveled a lot, selling irrigation systems and fertilizers to customers with big farms and flower businesses. Lacey worked as a substitute teacher, and by 2002, they were expecting their first child, a baby boy named Connor. Her due date was February 10th, 2003, but she never made it to that date. Lacey disappeared the day before Christmas in 2002. The evening before she disappeared, on December 23rd, Scott got his hair cut by Lacey's sister, Amy. Lacey was with him at the time, and at some point during the conversation, they discussed inviting Amy over for pizza later that night, which she declined, but they also discussed a fruit basket that they intended to get Amy and Lacey's grandfather. Scott offered to pick it up for them the next day because he had plans to golf that day, Christmas Eve. He also told others that he had plans to golf that day. Lacey's sister Amy, as well as the salon owner, both testified that they remembered Lacey wearing a dark black sweater and tan beige pants. Amy specifically said that she remembered Lacey wearing a black sweater with cream-colored polka dots. Later that evening, Scott and Lacey watched some football on TV before ending the night with the movie The Rookie, which is what Scott testified to. Great movie, Kennedy, and I watched that this weekend. That's sweet. I have never seen it. The next morning on the 24th, Scott said Lacey woke up before him. When he got up, she had already eaten some breakfast to avoid feeling sick, as she often did because of her pregnancy. 
While Scott got up and took a shower, Lacey got on their computer to look at a red gap scarf and a sunflower umbrella stand. Lacey loved sunflowers. This would imply that Lacey was still alive at 8.45 that morning, despite some people alleging that she was actually killed the night before. And there's more evidence to back this, though. Before he left that morning, they talked about their plans for the day. Lacey said that she needed to do a little grocery shopping to get what she needed for their Christmas brunch the next day. She also wanted to mop their floors and walk their dog, Mackenzie. Scott loaded three big patio umbrellas into the back of his truck with plans to store them at the warehouse where he works. He also filled the mop bucket for Lacey because she mentioned she wanted to mop their floors before they had people over for Christmas brunch the next morning. Scott said he left the house that morning at around 9.30 a.m. and remembered Lacey was watching Martha Stewart on TV. She was making some sort of merengue pie or dish. However, Scott had changed his plans from golfing to fishing instead because he said it was too cold to golf. He left the house between 9.30 and 10 a.m. And first, he stopped at his works warehouse to drop off the umbrellas and check his email. Computer forensics showed that Scott was logged onto his computer at the warehouse between 10.30 and 10.56 a.m. Then from 10.57 to approximately 11.17, he cleaned up his office a little bit. He began assembling this woodworking tool that he had just received in the mail. It was there at the warehouse. And he also unloaded some tools from the toolbox in the bed of his truck. While he was doing this, he said he cut his knuckle on the toolbox, and then he opened the driver's side door of his truck to get a napkin for the blood, leaving one drop of blood on the driver's side door. He didn't realize that he left a drop of blood, but a a drop of blood was found. It was his, and it was one drop. So some people allege that if Lacey was already dead, he brought her body to the warehouse in his truck and transferred it to the boat. But... He was only able to back it in so far before he could hitch his boat to the truck. So if that were true, it would have to be done in broad daylight. Scott left the warehouse with his boat at 1118 to go to the Berkeley Marina. Maps indicate that it takes about an hour and 36 minutes to get to the marina from the warehouse. He purchased a boat launch ticket at 1254 p.m. when he arrived at the marina which was exactly one hour and 36 minutes from when he left the warehouse. So all adds up right now. Yes. The ticket, it's time-stamped. It's one of those tickets that you get from any kind of parking garage where it's like a a heat, like a thermal Thermal printer. printer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you you can't fake that. I mean, you definitely could, but I get what you're saying in that it, I mean, I don't think he did. I don't think he did. Sure, anything is possible, but I don't think he did. Right. So back at their neighborhood on Covina Avenue, Scott and Lacey's neighbor, Karen Service, spotted their golden retriever, Mackenzie, at about 1030 in the morning. She was roaming around the neighborhood with her leash attached. By this point, at least 12 neighbors had seen Lacey walking Mackenzie that morning. These 12 witnesses all called the police to report their eyewitness accounts, and the police only followed up with three of them, and those follow-up calls were done by a phone call. They never met with these witnesses in person. They weren't asked exactly where they saw Lacey. They weren't shown exactly where they saw Lacey. They just weren't taken seriously, despite there being 12 different people 
all with similar accounts made within one week of Lacey disappearing. And so you you hear a lot about people saying, oh, eyewitness, eyewitness accounts aren't always reliable. But shouldn't they be reliable when there's 12 different people, unrelated, all saying a very similar version of the same thing? And they came through quick. It's not like this thing hit national news and then all of a sudden people started coming out six months later talking about it, right? Exactly, exactly. Okay. Now I want to talk more about these sightings before we talk about the rest of Scott's day on the 24th. So in total, there were 24 sightings of Lacey within a one-mile radius, and then within a three-mile radius, there were another seven, bringing the total to 31 witnesses who said they saw Lacey that morning outside walking her dog like she said she planned to do. One of the witnesses was a female hospital employee who described two men yelling at a pregnant woman who was walking a dog. This witness only received a return phone call. Another tip was from a retired reserve officer who described a pregnant woman being shoved back into a van less than half a mile from Scott and Lacey's house, and he made repeated attempts to contact MPD or Modesto police, and he was never even called back. What? How was that not called back? I mean, I get where like, hey, I saw this person walking, but I saw a pregnant woman being shoved into a van and they didn't call it back? Mm Mm-mm. No, and there was also a call. So this is going to be off script, okay? Because I didn't write this, but I plan on talking about it in part two. But I'll go ahead and bring it up now. Christmas Day, there was reports of an orange van that was set on fire within a mile of Lacey and Scott's house. And this is what day when all this is happening? She disappeared Christmas Eve, the morning of Christmas Eve. She was reported missing later that evening. The van was discovered incinerated, set on fire, like already charred the next day on Christmas, okay? This orange van was found in an alleyway that was about a mile from Scott and Lacey's house. It was clear that it was an arson fire because there was a rag hanging out of the gas hole. There was um, gas cans in the car or in the van, and it was clear it had been set on fire. When they moved one of the gas cans in the back of the van, it was sitting on top of a mattress. Why the hell is there a mattress behind in the back of this van? They removed one of the gas cans and it revealed a big red stain that was untouched by the fire because the gas can was on it. Mm-hmm. And so the rest of the mattress is pretty blackened and like charred. But when you move this gas can, you see a big blood stain. So the fire inspector who inspected this van called Modesto police. And he said that there were officers and a bunch of people that came out and looked at it. But I guess from what I understand, this area is kind of split into two districts. There's the airport district, and then there's another district. And so it's unknown if it just got lost in the shuffle because it was like right on the line. And so it just wasn't explored enough. But forensics were done. They took a sample from the mattress. Here recently. No, at the time. At the time. They took a sample from the mattress and it was determined to be human blood. But whatever evidence that was collected from that van, we don't know what happened to it after that. We don't know whose hands it ended up into. It was literally archived. And then nothing ever came of it until recently when this guy came forward again because the LA Innocence Project has taken over Scott's case. And so they're reviewing all the case files, everything. They're just scouring over all of the documents They came upon the information on this van, reached out to the guy that saw it, and he was like, yeah, I don't know why 
nobody ever called me back and like it wasn't followed up on. What he just assumed probably that maybe it had nothing to do with it. Like maybe he assumed that the police did their job and it was like, it must not have led to anything because nobody ever followed up with me, but somewhere it got lost in the shuffle. So now, how, you know what I mean? I know what how you mean. How does this Trust person me. go missing miles away the next morning? No, one mile away. One not mile miles. away the next morning, they find this van torched. There's it has reports a blood stain. from people saying she was shoved into a van. There was a burglary across the street where so the burglar is this just coming up van. now? Like, why is this? What's the recent thing about this? Because the LA Innocence Project has taken over his case. So and did we they, just ruin the whole part two of this? Well, no, not <laughs> okay. really. Not no, okay. really. But, I mean, we're just having a discussion about it, and yeah. um, it's all relevant. But the LA Innocence Project is why this is coming out now, because they have recently taken over this case. Holy shit. Now, the LA Innocence Project is not to be confused with the Innocence Project that's based out of New York. These are two different entities. I think the one that's in New York is much, much bigger. And they're like, we don't have anything to do with this. This is all the LA Innocence Project. But... They are taking it on and they are trying to get some DNA testing on the blood sample that was taken from that van. Because if that blood belongs to Connor and or Lacey, then it proves that Scott was innocent in all this. So Holy we will shit. touch Did on that again. Did anything come of that with the people who were associated with that van? Did anything come of... We're going to get to all that. Okay. So, but that's that's the the tip a tip that came in that was another one that was disregarded, just not taken seriously immediately after Lacey's disappearance. So crazy. Yes. Okay. Another concerning tip came from Lieutenant Aponte, who worked in a California prison. He called Modesto police to report a monitored phone conversation that one of their inmates had with his brother who lived in Modesto. This brother told the inmate that Lacey had confronted the burglars who were robbing the house directly across the street from where she lived. That house was, in fact, robbed the day that Lacey went missing. And I know there's some of you who are like, it wasn't the day of, it was actually two days later. Hold on, because this conversation, first of all, was recorded by the prison. Not only has the Modesto Police Department never handed over any follow-up on the tip from Lieutenant Aponte, but the tape has conveniently been lost. And trust me, we're going to get into this burglary thing in a minute because there is a lot to talk about in regards to this burglary that happened across the street. Some people say there's no way it happened on Christmas Eve. It happened later because the burglars admitted to it. And why don't we trust the burglars? They admitted to it. So we should just trust them, right? They're good guys. I mean, yeah, they burglarized a house that was directly across the street from Lacey's house. Literally, their doors faced each other. But the thing is, Lacey went missing Christmas Eve night. Media was there the morning of Christmas Day and then on. Don't you think that if media was present in front of Lacey's house, it would deter any burglars from breaking into the house right across the street? That is just common sense. But anyway, the lead detective on Lacey's case, Craig Grogan, was questioned on the stand by prosecutor Bridget Flatiger, I'm sorry, I don't know the name. And the detective implied that following up on the sightings was an impossible task. I'm sorry, how was it impossible? The majority of the witnesses all lived within a mile of each other. We've heard One of cases get of solved other. that make no sense how they get solved. And it was impossible to check into this? Right. You, it was impossible to follow up with these tips. Mm -hmm. especially from the neighborhood. Okay, now back to Scott's whereabouts on the day that Lacey disappeared. 
We left off with Scott purchasing the marina ticket at 12.54 p.m. He told the police that he puttered around the bay for about an hour and a half, and then as he left the marina, he called the house and Lacey's cell phone, but she didn't pick up. So he left the infamous voicemail that was like, hey, sweetie, hey, beautiful, I'm not going to have time to pick up that basket for Papa. I was hoping maybe you could get it. Okay, love you, sweetie. Bye. That's pretty much all it says. Everyone has heard it, but... Um, at everyone three, but me. Everyone but Austin, <laughs> apparently, because he wasn't present during the first episode. But anyway, at 325, he stopped to get gas, and his bank records confirmed this. And then he called Lacey again at 3.52 p.m., but she didn't pick up, and he did not leave a voicemail that time. So he arrived back at the warehouse to park his boat at about 4.15 p.m., and then he headed home. He got home between 4.30 and 4.45 and immediately found Mackenzie in the backyard with her leash attached. So he took the leash off and brought it inside. He noticed Lacey's car was still in the driveway, but when he got inside the house, he realized Lacey wasn't there. So he actually assumed that maybe her mom picked her up and that she was at her parents' house preparing for Christmas the next day. Then he changed his wet clothes from fishing and put them in the washing machine. Then he grabbed a piece of pizza out of the fridge, poured himself a glass of milk, and headed into the bathroom to take a shower. After showering, he went back into the kitchen to check their answering machine. He listened to the message that he left Lacey as he was leaving the marina, and he also heard a message from Lacey's stepfather, Ron Gransky, asking if they could bring whipped cream when they came over. So Scott called Lacey's parents and asked them if Lacey was there, and when he realized she was not there, he immediately started going to the neighbors door-to-door, calling them, and other friends to ask if they had seen Lacey, while Ron called the police to report Lacey missing. So there's a lot of discrepancy because, or like a lot of, I don't know, upset people because he didn't call the police, but he's out looking and searching the neighborhood. And I mean, we have no proof that he did or didn't do that. So, Mm -hmm. you know, some people might roll their eyes and think, yeah, I doubt he actually did that. We don't know, actually, but that would explain why Ron called instead. Mm -hmm. I don't know. So now the search begins. When police arrived at the Petersons' house, Lacey's keys, wallet, and sunglasses were all found in her purse, which was left in her closet. Initially, it seemed as though Lacey went for a walk in the neighborhood and possibly disappeared during that walk. Lacey's family was very supportive of Scott, calling them the ideal couple, the couple that everybody wanted to be. They appeared to be so happy. They have this baby on the way. It's like the American dream. But investigators brought Scott in almost immediately and questioned him just to get an idea of who and what they're working with. And this is very standard in any missing persons case. The husband is usually the first suspect. He's asked the typical questions like, tell me about your marriage. Do you guys have any problems? He says, no, things are good. He's very kind of cold and callous and like very leveled. He's not very emotional. He doesn't seem very concerned. But I will also say that his affect doesn't ever appear to change, ever. Not throughout the search, not throughout all the um, the stuff that comes out about him and his lies, not when he's faced with it, not during his conversation with Diane Sawyer. Like, he, his affect never changes. Do and I'm not saying he, that leads, I, I'm not saying that points to guilt or innocence. I just think it's interesting. So he never acts super upset? Correct. Ever? No. Interesting. He acts like... He's expecting her to come back later. I don't think he ever gave off the impression that he assumed the worst had happened. And see, I, I mean, obviously we aren't in that situation, thankfully, 
But can you imagine, like, I don't know, you, you're going to process things, we're humans, mm-hmm. and not everybody's just going to go into a f- fit of rage or crying or, you know, maybe you are a little bit stoic because you're just wrapping your head around it. Yeah, or in know. shock or trying to make sense of it. You know, I think in traumatic situations, sometimes we try to convince ourselves of the opposite of the worst. Like, I literally was thinking about this the other day. It's very hard to relate to somebody who's been in this situation because I've never had a family member who was murdered. I've never lost someone in that way. But this is the closest I can come to a traumatic situation where my brain was tricking me into thinking it was something that it wasn't, okay? Mm -hmm. A few years or a couple years ago, I was pulling out of our driveway And I accidentally ran over our cat. And it was the, like, I know some people are going to scoff at that because you don't like cats or you, I mean, obviously I'm not trying to relate killing my cat accidentally to someone being murdered. Okay. This was just personally very traumatic for me because I was devastated. I'm a huge animal lover. I personally loved this cat. And the second I ran over her, I remember feeling the bump and thinking, oh my God, it was a stick. It was just a stick. Looking in the mirror, hoping to God, all I saw was a stick. I saw her. I knew I had just ran over her. And in that shock, in that like first, because I was literally just thinking about this the other day, trying to understand someone's mindset. And this is what came to my mind. Mm -hmm. I remember being in that moment thinking, She's probably okay. She's probably fine. If I just drive away, maybe I need to go back and pick her up and just take her to the vet and she'll be okay. I didn't know what to do. I drove I drove halfway down our driveway trying to get my mind to like make a decision on what I needed to do in that moment because I didn't know what was going on. Mm-hmm. I didn't know, is she okay? Is she not okay? It was like my brain wouldn't allow me to accept that I just killed our cat. And, and so think about that in terms of true crime, obviously, like mm-hmm. you're talking. Wouldn't it be strange to say you killed our cat and then the doorbell camera saw you driving down the driveway, driving away casually? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yes. Like think about that and then you come back and if we heard that in an episode, we would be like, wait, why would you kill him and drive away? If if you like, So like it's interesting to take this and metaphorically use it as a lot of these stories. Again, it's a human versus an animal. We get that. But like- that is an interesting perspective. Yeah, it was just it was something that like absolutely devastated. You know, I was torn up. Well, I came home and, and I ended up picking him up and putting him in a per in a, uh, box. Yeah, it, it was, was awful. It was yeah, it sucked. It was terrible, but like I just remember in that moment not knowing what to do, not knowing what reality was, trying to convince myself that she was going to be fine, that I probably just ran over her leg even though I knew in reality, in my logical part of my brain, I knew that's not what was going on. But right. it's just interesting, the the places, the avenues your brain will go to try to convince you that you're safe, yeah. that there's not trouble ahead. It's like this fight or flight response. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like you said, anyone else analyzing it from the outside who maybe hasn't been in that situation would be like, well, it's kind of weird that you drove all the way down your driveway before you turned around right. and came back and checked on her. Like, trust me, I am the biggest animal lover that there is. I didn't even it know was, that until right now, you telling me that. Yeah, I just remember like shaking, not knowing what to do. It was like I couldn't figure out where I was. But yeah, looking at it from the outside, you can make anything seem suspicious. You can make any behavior seem suspicious. It's just like when you're Googling something, you're going to find what you're looking for. Yeah. You're looking up an experience of doing something, you know, putting your kids in a sport. I wonder if they're old enough to be in the sport. And if you're looking for that 
uh, reassurance of they're old enough, you'll find mm-hmm. that. If you're looking for, oh, it's too young, you'll find that. If you want to believe the husband did it, you'll find plenty of reasons, even yes. if they're circumstantial, to believe that he did. Yes. And I have to just say, to wrap up part one, that is how I feel about this case. I feel like there was not a fair trial given here because he was immediately looked at from the police and they didn't, they didn't like search or um, investigate any other kind of avenues. They immediately got a bad feeling from him. Then a week after she goes missing, this mistress comes forward that says, I've been having an affair with Scott. Not a good look. I agree. But after the fact, everywhere, everybody hated Scott. He was on billboards. He was on the front of magazines. There was no place you could look where it wasn't Scott's a monster. And I'm not saying that he's a good guy. So please don't be like, I can't believe you'd stand up for Scott. I'm saying just black and white. This is not really a fair trial when everybody is convinced of his guilt because of all these bad things and that he did. Mm-hmm. I agree. What he did was horrible, cheating on his wife and lying about it. And his behavior is super sus. But it doesn't convince me concretely that he murdered his wife. And you're somebody who also takes common sense into into um, consideration mm-hmm. and all the other things. And you're very well versed on this. And even you're saying that. That's To me, I mean, I, I think you have a very well-rounded way of looking at things. And so to hear you say that is kind of like, wow, that's something I've also, to think about. Thank you. And I've also been thinking about when you hear about this orange van – no matter what side of the fence you sit on, okay? When you hear about this orange man and you're like, no, it has nothing to do with this. He's guilty. I'm convinced because he's a dirtbag and there's all these other things that point, maybe not directly, but the, the line ends up there. Mm-hmm. If this van shows that the blood on the mattress was Lacey's, then what? Then how are you going to defend that? How are you going to stick to your theory? If you find out that the blood on the van or in the van is Lacey's. And like, if you believe that, then how can you say that you were 110% convinced of his guilt? You can't, you at least, you have to leave a little bit of room for like doubt because there's nothing that concretely points to him. We don't know when she was killed, how she was killed, exactly where she was killed. There's no physical evidence. There's no physical evidence that was left behind by her at the house, no physical evidence of her in the boat besides maybe a hair, a strand so she of hair. never been found? No, she was eventually found in the bay, and we're going to touch on that in part two. But there is just so much that there are questions, and if you can't answer these questions, then you can't say without a doubt that he is guilty. Now, listen, I know a lot of you who listen to this podcast have listened to to this for a while and you know me and you know how passionate I am about the Casey Anthony case. And everyone on the jury of that case said, well, there was no physical evidence that pointed to Casey Anthony, so we had to acquit. That's different. That is so different, (laughs) but... It is, though. But, I mean, it's different, but it's the same. I, like, trust me, I drive myself crazy because I'm like, well, Kelly, there's no physical... We don't know exactly when she died, how she died. We don't know exactly... But we know Casey did it. 
I don't know why I can't have that same passionate like acceptance in the Scott and Lacey case. I just think there's more doubt. You know, there's some people who are like, well, I don't know if Casey did it, but I definitely think the dad did. I'm not even like that. I'm like, no, absolutely not. Casey fucking did it and she deserves to rot and I I hate her. <laughs> but and I hate her. But I think it's just kind of extreme to like sentence a man to the death penalty when there's no physical evidence that he did this. Okay, last question real okay. quick before part two. Are the people who were involved with the orange van, were they busted, guilty of anything, or are they running free? Actually, I'm glad that you mentioned that because the orange van, okay, I want to I wanna add, which I'll, I'll touch on this in part two. Hopefully I don't forget, but um, the orange van was discovered on December 25th, okay, Christmas Day. And it was towed. It was brought back to the yard. They found out who it was registered to, all these things. They went to the owner. It was a, a man named Terry Borden, I believe. This is all off the top of my head, so give me a break. But they went to the man who had the vehicle registered in his name. He owned like some sort of crane operating business, and he employed various people. The person that he employed who last had the van was like, yeah, I last had access to the van. I returned it on the 27th. And they're like, no, you couldn't have returned it on the 27th because we discovered it burned on the 25th. So why would you lie about that? Mm. And Modesto is not exactly a crime-free place. Like this place in particular was known for a lot of like criminal activity, drug dealing, gang activity, car theft. So there, there are certainly plenty of explanations as to why and how that van ended up there. I do hope that when the blood gets tested, regardless of if it's if it belongs to Case uh, Lacey or Connor, that they do discover who it belonged to because it must be in relating in relation to like an unsolved case. Mm-hmm. And so I hope there's justice that comes of this because there's human blood on a mattress in the back of a burned up van. Something horrible happened in that van. We have to figure out what it was. And my for real last thing. Okay. Scott has been sitting in prison ever since this? Ever since. In 2022, his death penalty sentence was overturned and rolled back to or commuted to a life in uh, a life in prison sentence. So he is now no longer at San Quentin. He's in a different facility, but he is still sentenced to life in prison without parole. This was a completely unrelated thing. This was because of jury something that happened during jury selection where the jurors weren't screened appropriately during the voir dire process, which is where they ask jurors, like, how do you feel about the death penalty? If you agree with it, if you don't agree with it, can you change your opinion based on this? Like, can you can you come into this with an unbiased mindset? Anyway, during that screening process, um, there was somebody who made it through that shouldn't have. And so they commuted his sentence from death to just life and parole or life without parole. But it's unrelated to any of this evidence. The LA Innocence Project didn't come in until after the fact. This is separate. But they're trying to get him a new trial based on new evidence. Part one done? Yeah, man, I'm exhausted. Sorry, that that last 10 minutes was a ramble. If you made it through and listened to all my stuttering and then I applaud you You because I struggle sometimes without a script, but... That is that is part one. Come Your back next week. Biggest self-critic. Mama. Mystery. Out. Out.